Hello, everybody. I'm Ralph Kuhlman, and I'm a union steward at Wallingford Station in Seattle. Today, I want to talk about our strongest, most valuable tool, our national agreement, our contract with the United States Postal Service. I've been involved in some type of organizing throughout my entire life from when I was 20 years old and in the Peace Corps throughout my entire career. And the Postal Service is at my first career. And when I joined the Postal Service, one thing I recognized very quickly was if you're an organizer and you have a contract, the rules set forth on how both sides should act, you have an incredibly powerful tool. And that is our national contract. Now, the Postal Service just didn't give us a national contract. In fact, over a 10-day period in March of 1970, hundreds of Thousands of our colleagues fought, risked everything they had, faced threats of imprisonment in order to get our national contract. I've posted every single New York Times article by day from the time period March 8 to 27th, 1970. It's on the website. Go there. You can hit it by day. You can read through what's going on. I will be going through some of the major points of what are in those articles. And I will be stressing the blood, the sweat, the tear, the risk, the personal stress the difficulties families had to go through in order for us to get that contract. In my piece on Union Steward, I stated that I am the keeper of the contract. And that's true. I should know the contract and I need to make sure it's followed. And if it isn't, I need to hold my managers and supervisors feet to the fire to make sure that happens. But I can't do that alone. It could never be done alone. Everybody above me in the National Association of Letter Carriers needs to defend that contract. If no one has my back, if no one's fighting every minute of every day for the contract that we won, 53 years ago, the contract increasingly becomes meaningless. And at the end of this broadcast, I will be taking some time to say, what did we win and do we still have it? And what do we need to do today? So let's step back to 1970 and let's look at the working conditions of city letter carriers. And let's think about those conditions in terms of where we are today. In 
1970, the starting wage for a city letter carrier was $6,100. If you adjust that for inflation in 2023, that comes out to $48,760. Does that sound familiar? Because that's just about what our starting wage is now. In addition, letter carriers were working, especially in the urban areas, anywhere from 10 to 14 hours a day, often six days a week. Does that sound familiar? Because that's pretty much where my station's at right now. People couldn't afford to feed their families. They couldn't afford to live where they were delivering the mail. In fact, a survey of postal carriers in 1970 identified that 7% of all postal carriers in the country were on welfare of some sort, subsidies to feed and house their families while they were working 10 to 14 hours a day. It's pretty much the same at my station in Wallingford, I'll tell you that right now. Most of the carriers I work with are commuting a minimum of 30 minutes, maybe an hour, into Seattle, into Wallingford to do their job because that's where they can afford to raise their families. Most of those carriers are working 10, 12 hours a day with no end in sight. They're mandated to work on their days off. They're mandated to work on their holidays. They're brought in and controlled by our management when they want to work or take the day off for a hard-fought three-day weekend that they're entitled to, that they've earned. And much like today, the brunt of the pain is in major urban areas. And that's where the story of the great postal strike of 1970 begins. In New York City, with Branch 36, with a bunch of carriers and a branch president who finally said, enough is enough. At the time, 1970, no federal employee and postal service carriers were employees of the federal government could strike. It was forbidden. They knew that they were going to have to fight. They knew that their families would be endangered. But they also did something I mentioned in an earlier podcast. They knew exactly what they wanted and they articulated it. They wanted a pay increase, and they wanted it now. They wanted to go from that $6,100 to $8,500 minimum. But that wasn't going to be enough. They also needed cost of living adjustments. 
They needed to know that they were eligible for retirement 20 years into the job. They wanted full health and life insurance, and they wanted a collective bargaining agreement. They knew that they could no longer continue to survive without those benefits, and they were willing to risk it all. They called a strike, and they went on strike. That strike spread quickly, amazingly quickly, to New Jersey and Connecticut the next day. Uh, actually, the first branch presidents struggling with their dissatisfied employees and fearful of the risks that they would take if they supported a strike started resigning. And in fact, the postmaster ordered that all mail stop being sent into New York City because it simply could not afford to have four, five, six days of mail piling up in all their postal stations. The postmaster went to a federal judge and got an order for the immediate return of all those carriers, and he placed all those carriers in a non-pay status, just like I'm in now. And union officials began urgently asking carriers, ordering, hoping, cajoling carriers to go back to work. In fact, carriers were threatened with up to one year imprisonment if they didn't go back to work. And yet they didn't go back to work. They wouldn't go back to work. They were tired of unfulfilled promises until finally the postmaster, or I'm sorry, the attorney general stated publicly that no carriers would be imprisoned, that he did not seek it was necessary to have people become prisoners because they wanted their job. By the third day, the strike had already spread to the Midwest, and the National Association of Letter Carries called in over 300 union officials to Washington, D.C. to discuss what was going to happen. The federal government refused to negotiate with postal workers because they continued to claim, and to some degree rightfully so, that the only entity that could actually change the conditions postal carriers were working under was the U.S. Congress. Um, that same third day, it became clear that there were over 500 tons of mail waiting to go out to Vietnam veterans and their families and postal carriers stepped up and volunteered to make sure that mail got through. The National Association of Carriers, Letter Carriers, began to urge workers to go back to work very, very quickly. Um, New York members continue to hold out, saying that this strike was about more than promises because just like today, 
most postal carriers had had enough of unfulfilled promises. I can't think of how many cease and desist, desist that have been signed by my managers over the last six years. And by the fourth day, New York City clerks and mail handlers refused to cross the picket line. Federal government started trying to play hardball and informed those carriers that and their union representatives that they could be fined. By the fifth day, the night they had, the, the strike had expanded to the entire nation, with over half the nation not getting their mail. It affected almost every aspect of American life, including draft notices not being sent out for the Vietnam War. It also um, included a threat by President Nixon to bring in the military to deliver the mail if the carriers didn't come back. By the sixth day, seven union leaders of different representative postal workers met in Washington, D.C. to discuss the situation. The president at the, of the National Association of Letter Carriers expressed his belief that by the following Monday, 90% of all postal workers would be back. Something that I feel like I see these days. My union standing up against its workers, their needs, their desires at the national level and siding with the Postal Service. Congress of course, became increasingly concerned and expressed, indicated to the public that they would be more than willing to approve a pay hike if President Nixon said he wouldn't begin to, would, would not veto that pay hike. Thousands of carriers voted to continue the strike. Thousands more decided to go back to work because they needed to support the the um, they needed to support their families the same kind of issues i the same kind of pressures that all of us feel every day and as one postal worker returning to work in cincinnati put it believe me if they come back with crumbs after a five days of negotiating i'll be the first to lead a strike out of Cincinnati. If we are going to do anything, brothers, we must do it together because singly they are going to hang us. We cannot be divided. We can only win through solidarity. By the seventh day, President Nixon ordered the military into New York to help deliver the mail. He made it clear that they were there to sort and organize, but in no way would soldiers be on the streets of New York City delivering mail. And a soldier expressed his concerns this way, saying, tomorrow we're going to see the New York mail massacre. It's going to be a farce. 
I'm a medic. I don't know a thing about the postal department. Nobody knows what they're doing. Delivering mail. By the eighth day, postal service management started doing what we're all very familiar with these days. They started making false claims and lies. In fact, the postmaster general said that workers were returning in unprecedented numbers while the New York Times reported that of the 57,000 New York City workers out on strike, approximately 4,000 showed up to work. More fines were th threatened against the union. And to be honest with you, everybody who was living on a wage that they couldn't afford to support their family with originally really started to feel the pressure. But many of those branches held firm. They knew that this was a do or die situation. Finally, on the ninth day, there was a package offered between both sides that included full health benefits, eight years to the highest pay level, collective bargaining, and a total amnesty for all striking postal workers. The New York City letter carriers returned to work and were promised, all letter carriers were promised, an immediate 12% increase and that was retroactive to six months earlier in October of 1969. Nixon promised to get congressional approval for the agreement and approximately three months later, four months later, the Postal Reorganization Act of July 1970 was signed. Carriers had reached the limits of what they could stand. They had demanded equality with their postal service management counterparts, and it was granted. The question is, what has happened in the intervening 53 years? And I will talk about that a little bit in my next section. Well, that concludes today's episode. I'm Ralph Kuhlman, and I'm a union steward at Wallingford Station in Seattle. I'd like to thank all the clowns that made this podcast necessary. The stellar management staff at Wallingford Station, the incomprehensible team at the Seattle Postmaster's Office, ordering brutal commands in an effort to enforce the metric of the day through the entire city and beyond. And finally, everybody at upper management at USPS. Your identification of the metric of the day makes all of this insanity possible. <music>